Amen. Well, please be seated. And good morning. Great to see you. Great to worship with you. What a beautiful sound to hear the church singing together in unity like we were just doing. That was such a joy to hear us worshiping together. Hey, I want to point out a family to you this morning that's visiting us, and I know we don't normally do this, so I'll explain to you why in just a moment, but I just want to point out uh, Pastor Nate and his wife Allison and their children who are here today, and the reason for that is because Nate pastors Anthem Chapel, uh, which is, of course, right here in Goleta, and you know as a church that we regularly pray for other local churches that are faithful, that are preaching the gospel and loving this city And of course, we pray for Anthem Chapel several times a year as a church family on Sunday mornings. And so if you don't know Nate and Allison, I want you to be able to have a face for the names, to know that we are praying for them. And I just want to tell you guys, we love you. We appreciate you. We're so thankful for the Anthem Chapel family. And we're thankful to be partners with you in the gospel in this city. So love you guys. Thankful for you. Okay, Psalm 28. Let's get after it. Another beautiful psalm that David has written for us, King David, the uh, worship leader, one of the worship leaders of Israel and a great poet. And one of the themes that immediately emerges here in Psalm 28 is the idea of silence, relational silence. And if you stop and you think about it, in a relationship, silence can be one of the most painful experiences. Especially when you're reaching out and you're reaching out and you're reaching out to that person that you're in relationship with and they're ghosting you. There's no response. There's just radio silence. David here in Psalm 28 seems to be begging God to not give him the silent treatment. Okay, he doesn't put it that way, but you get the idea. David is calling out to the Lord in Psalm 28, and he's saying, Lord, don't give a deaf ear to me. Lord, do not be silent with me. God, I need you to answer me, to speak to me, to respond to the prayer that I'm offering you right now. God's silence is painful for David as is the silence that you receive from somebody that you love. Especially when you're calling out to that person in a time of great need, when you're reaching out to that person who should be there for you, that person that loves you, and you've communicated to them your need. I need you. I need your help. And all you get back is silence. It's painful. It hurts. Now David is expecting an answer from God, much as you would expect an answer from a loved one when you reach out for help. That makes sense to David. God is David's God, and David belongs to him. Isn't God supposed to be committed to him just as David's committed to the Lord? If not, then what makes David any different from those people who don't trust in the Lord, who don't look to the Lord? All of this is terribly distressing for David here in Psalm 28. Now, this psalm is broken up into four stanzas. That's how we'll break up the sermon today. But all of the stanzas are two verses long, except the second stanza, which is three verses long. This is a poetic technique that draws our attention to that second stanza and tips us off to the fact that that's the central part of the psalm. Stanza two is really going to have the the key idea of Psalm chapter 28. But we're going to break this psalm into four parts, four stanzas, 
And the first one is verses 1 and 2. So let's just reread those, and then we'll see what David is saying here. So here's David praying to the Lord. He says, To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. We could summarize this first stanza with this idea. David is saying to God, don't be silent. Don't be silent. Lord, don't do that to me. Hear me, listen to me, and answer me, please. In verse 2, we see that David cries out to God for help, which tells us that there is some sort of distress, some sort of threat that David is facing. And his fear here is that God will be silent to him, which will lead to his death. That's what he means in verse 1 when he says that he will become like those who go down to the pit. The pit was an expression that referred to Sheol or Hades, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And David's saying, look, God, if you don't answer me, if you don't respond to me, if you don't deliver me from my trouble, then I'm going to be no different than those who end up dead. Now, what is this life-threatening scenario that David is facing? Well, like a lot of these psalms, we don't exactly know. It's not perfectly spelled out for us. Some commentators of the Old Testament think that it's an illness, that David is perhaps sick, and he's facing a life-threatening illness. To me, that seems unlikely, especially considering verses 3 through 5, where the real threat here seems to be enemies, people that are against David. Could also be the threat of war or violence against the kingdom. Of course, David was the king in Israel, so he was in charge and responsible for national security. And if somebody invaded the kingdom and defeated them, they're going to take the king and they're going to execute him. And so that could perhaps be it. Maybe it's people who are plotting against King David from within or from without the kingdom. Strategizing, how can we take out the leader of Israel? The most interesting thought, though, comes from verse 3, where David is afraid in verse 3 that he might be lumped together with the wicked. That God might bring David into the group of the wicked and judge him along with them. Could it be that David was being accused of being a part of a conspiracy at some point, either before or after becoming the king? We just don't know for sure. But what we know from this psalm, like many of the other psalms of lament, is that David is facing an intense and distressing personal crisis. He needs God to rise up. He needs God to act on his behalf. He does not have the human resources to solve this himself. And so he needs the Lord to step in and to solve this. David's neediness is even seen in his physical posture here in verse 2. Notice that David in verse 2 has his hands, they're lifted up toward the temple, probably not in praise, probably in supplication. And not just the temple or tabernacle at this point, but the word there is unique in the Old Testament. It refers to the holiest place or the holy of holies within the tent of meeting. As many of you know, this is a reference then to the place where the Hebrew people understood the very presence of God to be. And David is lifting up his hands in the direction of the holy of holies and he is saying to the Lord, I need you. 
Would you help me? And he's got these open hands signifying that he needs to receive something from God. He's in a desperate place. He's in a needy spot. This brings us then to the second stanza of this prayer. David moves now from saying, don't be silent to me, Lord, to saying essentially, don't be lenient. And he's going to be referring to those who are workers of evil. He doesn't want God to be lenient. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. This psalm, like most of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, makes the assumption that people belong to one of two communities. People belong to either the community of evildoers or the community of the faithful. And not only that, the psalm assumes that God relates to these two communities totally differently. And so David here does not want to be associated with the community of evildoers. He's saying, Lord, don't lump me in with them. Don't drag me away, drag me off with the evildoers. David knows that these people will be dragged off in verse 3, and he knows that these people will be torn down and not built up in verse 5. So he wants nothing to do with that. Lord, don't let that be my end. Don't lump me in with these workers of evil. Now let's talk for a moment here about who these people are that David is referring to. He's not talking about people who have just done wrong things from time to time. People who are imperfect, right? That would include every single one of us. Every person who's ever lived and who will ever live, except Jesus, is imperfect. We're all sinful. So he's not referring to that. He's referring to people who are devoted to a life of wickedness, a life of evil, a life of sinfulness, because, and this is the most important part, because, according to verse 5, they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Now David is getting at the motive underneath the evilness, the evil. That idea that they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands means that they do not acknowledge God's presence or God's power in the world. They treat God flippantly. They're unaware or unwilling to acknowledge that God is there and that God is active in the world and that God is a saving presence on the earth. They reject that. They deny that. They ignore those realities. And because they ignore those realities... Because they think that either God is not there, or God is unaware, or God does not care. That was awesome. That was three rhymes in a row. Because they think that, this emboldens them to live any way that they want, to actually become evil and wicked and scheming and manipulative. This really is the root issue underneath all of it. They don't regard God. They don't acknowledge him for who he actually is. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 is hinting there at the same idea. 
Paul in Romans chapter 1 is talking about why the wrath of God is coming on the earth, and it's to judge unrighteousness and wickedness. But Paul is going to say that the, the, the reason that that stuff exists in the world is because people are suppressing the truth about God. In fact, he says in uh, verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, they're, they're not going to acknowledge him. They're denying that he's here, that he's active, that he's powerful in the world. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now check out the wickedness that flows from this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So Paul is saying something similar to what David is getting at here. That the thing that's underneath the evilness and the sin is people living as if God's not there. People denying these realities that God's there, that he's active, that he's powerful, and that he will judge the earth. Because listen, if you believe in your heart that God is real, and that God is watching over your life, and that you will give an account of your life at the end when Christ comes to judge the world, that's going to impact the way that you live. And if you don't believe those things, and you think that there is no God, or that God is indifferent and he doesn't care, that's going to impact the way that you live. And so these people are living lives of wickedness because, again, they deny God's power and his presence in the world. Now, people who think that way, live that way, as if God's not there, that doesn't necessarily lead to them being the most evil people in the world. In fact, sometimes it's religious people who perpetuate some of the great evils throughout history. But what I would say is that if you're a person who's denying these realities, you've removed a major check against evil and unbridled wickedness in your life. And by not acknowledging God and not receiving God by faith, you've disconnected yourself from the presence and the power of God who is able to deliver you from your own wickedness and empower you to start living a life of righteousness and goodness in the world. It's tragic. Now what kind of wickedness are these people given to in Psalm 28? In short, David points out that they're deceptive and they're malicious. Notice what he says. He says they speak peace. Right? So their words are words of peace and kindness toward their neighbors. And yet, notice that their intentions are evil. He says, evil is in their hearts. So they speak peace. They say the right things. They try to make people think that they're good and that they have the best intentions of others at heart. And yet, their intentions are evil. And not only are their intentions evil, he says their deeds are evil as well. So these people form alliances and treaties with other people just so that they can stab them in the back and take advantage of them. These people are two-faced. 
up front, again, they speak peace. We're friends. We're good. I'm with you. But then behind people's backs, they're destructive and they're malicious. And these people are doing real damage to real people. And that's what we've got to understand about sin. Sin is not always just a personal thing between you and God. So that we can just say, well, what's the big deal, God? Our sin impacts other people. And lots of sin, lots of the things that God says no to in our life have horizontal implications. They're destructive for people around you, relationships around you. They actually hurt other people, and God's not okay with that. And in fact, these people are possibly the threat to David's life, as I mentioned, referred to back in verse 1. So David here prays a stunning prayer in verse 4. He does not want God to be lenient with these evil people. David's prayer is essentially this, God, give them what they deserve. Now, it's interesting that nobody ever prays, God, give me what I deserve. <laughs> right? We're scared to pray a prayer like that. And we should be. Because if God answered that prayer, you would die and you would not pass go and collect $200. You would die and you'd go to hell because that's what all of us deserve. So nobody ever prays that prayer. God, give me what I deserve. We always pray, God, give me mercy, give me grace. But David here prays about these wicked, evil doers, and he says, give them what they deserve. God caused their wicked schemes to fall back on their own heads. Now, this form of prayer is, it has a name, it's called imprecatory prayer. As Christians, these are often the most difficult verses in the Psalter for us to understand. Because they're in their prayers, they're in the Bible, but they're imprecatory. Sometimes Christians rightly ask, are these even valid prayers in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Our Savior himself taught us to pray prayers like his own prayer for his murderers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So are these even legitimate for us as Christians? The answer is, they could be. They could be. I want to quote Tremper Longman, who was an esteemed Old Testament scholar right here at our very own Westmont. But I wanted to quote him at length here because I think he unpacks something really helpful here. And I quote, Tremper writes this, When we are deeply harmed and our anger boils, he says it would be both fruitless, because God reads our hearts, and dangerous to suppress those emotions rather than turning them over to God. And he goes on to say, and that is the important point. The imprecations are not just expressions of anger. They allow us to turn our anger over to God for him to act as he sees fit. These prayers do not ask God for the resources and opportunity to take vengeance on our enemies. They ask God to do so and acknowledge his freedom to act or not act as he sees fit. In this way, the imprecations conform to the advice that Paul gives to his readers. Do not repay anyone for e evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 17 through 19. 
end quote. So there's a lot there that Tremper's getting at. But the main idea is there is Tremper is saying, look, when there is severe injustice perpetrated against you or that you see in the world, it's not doing yourself any favors to just suppress that or deny that righteous anger you feel inside. We need to take that before the Lord and we can say to the Lord in prayer, God, stop this, stop this evil, stop this person. And then leave God's sorting of that out in his own hands. The key there again is that we are not as Christians called to say, God, give me the ability to avenge myself on this person. We're a people who are saying, Lord, you get to decide what you do. But God, you have created me in your image and this injustice is wrong and I declare it to be wrong and it grieves my spirit. And we can trust that as we pray prayers like that, God is saying, and it grieves mine too. Ryan and I were talking recently about the genocide and the genocide that was taking place in uh, Myanmar recently. And, di- and Ryan was talking about how he was praying for that in his own private devotional life. And his prayer went something like this. He was saying, God, save these wicked people. But if not, take them out. Save these wicked people, but if not, just take them out. If, if they're not going to come to their senses and turn to you, then stop the evil that they're doing. They are slaughtering innocent women and children. Take them out. And of course, God could stop them by taking them out. Or God could stop them by converting them and bringing them to Christ. But the point is, that's his prerogative. We are just saying, Lord, stop this. This is not right. We don't want to see this. And notice that Ryan's prayer is not rooted in hatred. His prayer is actually rooted in love, love for these innocent people that are being abused and oppressed. So these prayers are not a license for us to say, Lord, wipe out that person who cut me off on the 101. (laughs) Just explode their car right now, Lord. They deserve it. These are not a license for us to say, Lord, destroy the life of the person that has a bad attitude at work. These are not a license for us to go all sons of thunder on people. Do you remember the sons of thunder in the Gospel of Luke? James and John had that affectionate nickname, sons of thunder. And when Jesus was trying to go into this Samaritan village, they rejected him. And the sons of thunder thought that they were so godly and so righteous. And they say, hey, hey Jesus, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They're probably expecting Jesus to be like, perfect, go ahead, just call the fire down, let's destroy this village. And Jesus turns and rebukes them. Turns and rebukes them. Says no. Again, this sort of prayer might have a legitimate place in certain circumstances. Verse 5 is the turning point in this psalm. Again, this second stanza has three verses for a reason. Because these people do not acknowledge God... David is confident that God is going to tear them down and not build them up. That's what's going to happen. Even though these people feel secure and they feel powerful now, David is confident that God is going to enact justice and he's going to bring their wicked reign to an end. And this awareness, this promise, is as good as done in the mind of David. And so it leads David in verse 6 to praise. This third stanza 
is a major shift into now worship and praise for David. I titled it, Bless the Lord. Look again at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. Now, it could be that this prayer was written down after God had already resolved the crisis that David was praying about. And if that's the case, then David is certainly praising God for God's deliverance. God delivered, and now David is saying, thank you, praise you. Notice that in verse 6, he says, For he has, past tense, heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Which is exactly what David asked for in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he asked for that and now he's saying God answered that. Notice also in verse 7, David writes that he is helped. Which is exactly what he asked for in verse 2. Where he says, when I cry to you for help. So again, it could be that when David's actually writing the prayer. That God has already resolved the situation. The deliverance has come and now... David is praising God in response for the deliverance. Or, another way of seeing this, is that it could have been that this sudden shift to praise and this sense of confidence that God had heard and answered him came from the reminder of God's character and God's promises in verse 5. What I mean to say is that in verse 5, David was reminding himself in prayer of some very important truths. Namely, that because these people do not regard God and do not regard the works of God, there is no way that the Lord is going to allow them to just continue on. No, no, no. God will tear them down. God will exercise justice. And David trusts that. If the defining mark of the wicked here is that they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, then the defining mark of the faithful is that they do regard the works of the Lord and the work of his hands. Thus, David believes that there's no way that God would sit idly by and watch the wicked destroy the righteous. The believer is the one who lives by faith in the promises of God. So for David and for all of us, So long as we have the promise of God, it's as good as done in our lives. And we live lives now in light of those promises, in light of those realities. So for David and for all of us, we can confidently say, the Lord is my strength and my shield, only when we can also sincerely say, in him my heart trusts. So David, knowing the ultimate outcome, is filled with, with gratitude, right? He's filled with thanksgiving for the Lord. He says, with my song, I give thanks to him. And I love that his thanksgiving is expressed in song. Music, singing in particular, is one of the most effective ways of expressing emotion. And we see this often in the Psalms, that gratitude and thanksgiving resounds in praise, in singing among God's people. And so for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, gratitude and joy should naturally resound in passionate 
singing to our God. That's why it's so beautiful and so encouraging when the church is singing at the top of our lungs like we were 10, well, I guess 20, 25 minutes ago now. It's encouraging. It's a response in our heart, a grateful response. It's a way of offering thanksgiving to God. And sometimes we come to these places, we come to a church service, or we come to a time of prayer, and it's hard for us to be grateful. It's hard for us to be thankful because of the circumstances that we're facing. What do we do with that? How do we deal with that? Well, the answer is to stop and to remind yourself of what God has done for you to deliver you. David experienced real deliverance from God, and that just stirred up his heart to worship, filled his heart with thanksgiving and gratitude. He was facing death, and family, so are we. But not just physical death, apart from Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, and apart from his resurrection from the grave, you and I are facing eternal death and separation from the presence of a good God. And yet, God loves us so much that he sent his own son to save us and to deliver us so that we could have life everlasting. And if we're looking at the circumstances of our life and they're so bleak and they're so discouraging and they're so depressing that we can't find motivation to praise, we've got to go back to the gospel. We've got to get our feet on something that's deeper and more permanent than our temporary circumstances. And the gospel is exactly that. We look to the cross, we look to the resurrection, and so long as we keep our minds and our hearts bathed in the good news of the gospel, we will be a worshipful, grateful, thankful people forever. This is the key. Okay, let's look at this last stanza and we'll close. David now shifts his attention. And the final prayer could be summarized this way. He says, bless your people. Bless your people. Look at verse 8. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Notice that in these final two verses, the I will bless the Lord of verse 6 becomes, oh, bless your heritage or your people in verse 9. The scope of the prayer moves beyond the individual to the nation. In verse 8, the Lord is now not only the strength of the psalmist David, but he's the strength of his people, precisely because he is the saving refuge of his anointed, a reference to David himself. As God delivers the king from his trial, it brings salvation for all of the people. And I just love that that's a, a picture of how salvation works for all of us. As God delivered our King, Jesus, from his trial, death on the cross, that brings salvation for all of the people. He's our anointed one. He's our Messiah. That's the word there. He's our representative leader before God. And so as God delivered him through death on the cross, and through payment for sin, and raised him to new life, salvation extends outward to all of God's people. For every single one of us who are in Christ, and who are under his lordship, he's our king, he's our Messiah, guess what? 
As citizens of his kingdom, God's deliverance of Christ is God's deliverance of you and of me. This is how salvation works. James Montgomery Boyce, that renowned Presbyterian preacher, points out the tendency of David here in verses 8 and 9 ought to be a pattern for us. Boyce says, when God answered David's prayer, David does two things. Number one, he gives thanks, which is what we already talked about in verses 6 and 7. But number two, he asks God to bless others in like manner. See, our prayer lives are not just about us and our own needs. There's certainly a place for that. And I would even say that's the beginning point of our prayer lives. I mean, we need to be rightly aligned with God. We need to be at a place of health before the Lord. But our prayer lives are not just about us and our needs. Our prayer lives are about seeing ourselves as one member among the people of God. So that when we pray to the Lord, it's not just about me, it's about we. That the very same blessings that we want, the very same things that we know we should have in our lives in order to glorify God should be the same sorts of things that we want for everybody in the household of faith. That our prayers should work themselves outwards to other people. It's not just about me, it's about we. Now the psalm here ends on a beautiful high note with a plea for God to never let them go. He says to the Lord, be their shepherd and carry them forever. That's shepherd language we've seen before, of course, nowhere more clearly than Psalm 23. But David has this concept that God is the shepherd of his people. It's a tender, relational metaphor. The shepherd leads the sheep. The shepherd guides the sheep. The, the shepherd provides for the sheep. The shepherd protects the sheep. And so David is saying, even though he as the king, in a sense, functioned as an under-shepherd over God's people, David realizes, I don't have the resources to lead these people. I can't carry them forever. Lord, you're the true shepherd. Would you shepherd your people, and I love this, and would you carry them forever. Notice that the priority is on his strength and not ours. That we are all like sheep. We're weak. We're frail. We're dumb. We get ourselves off the right track. But we can have confidence about our future because we have a shepherd who's guiding us and even when we fail to listen to his voice, he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one and he picks us up. He throws us over his shoulders and he carries us back to green pastures. He brings us back to the place that we really need to be if we're going to thrive and if we're going to flourish as image bearers of God. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so many reasons to live lives of gratitude. And we have every reason to be a people, even when praying is difficult, like Psalm 28 feels like God's not listening. Prayer is painful. We have every reason to be filled with faith, filled with hope that our good shepherd will carry us forever. Amen? Let's pray.